Hey everyone, welcome to Season 2, Episode 6 of Whiskey Queens. This week we're talking about what differentiates Tennessee whiskey from bourbons and ryes, and we're giving Knob Creek's nine-year bourbon a try. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to check us out at whiskeyqueens.com, at the Whiskey Queens on Instagram, and be sure to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks, and here's the show. Ooh, that was a good one. First try. Uh, yeah, because I'm a fucking amazing. <laughs> Welcome to episode six, everyone. How are you doing? I am doing well. I am here. I am alive. I am healthy. I'm having some whiskey. You're like you days doing? away. Um, I'm, mm, I'm drinking with a purpose this week. That's where with I'm a, at. A purpose. Drinking with a purpose. This not week a is porpoise. hell on wheels. Not a, not a porpoise, but a purpose. This week is hell on wheels, like a gasoline-soaked handbag. Um, Preach. The, end of the year, I'm over it. Sitting for an exam on Friday for a new certification, and I've been studying like I'm in graduate school again, which is a feeling I don't particularly Oof. miss. No, past those years, honey. Yeah. How about you? How are you doing over there? I'm good. I mean, the end of the year is a clusterfuck, and not just because the world is a clusterfuck, but uh, it always is for me, as we were discussing sort of pre-show, is that I do organizational management for a small nonprofit, and our fiscal year is a calendar year. So in the administration world, this is like a Hell. horse, yeah, a horse race or, a, a, you know, a marathon, if you will, like the final sprints of a marathon as I sort of go into the holiday break. That's sort of where I am. Fun. Yeah, I don't envy you. But um, if you want to take my test for me on Friday, you are no. absolutely welcome. No. Hard pass. Okay. I tried. Uh, well, what are we talking about this week? I don't know. Stuff. Stuff. Um, I think you're talking about Tennessee whiskey, but I think before you dive into the Tennessee whiskey, uh, we were talking about... Isn't there a song about Tennessee whiskey? I feel like I'm... I put it... I feel like I put it on my Instagram page once. I would not be the one because it seems like it would be a country song. And it I is am, a country song. Yeah, I'm not your reference. I am not your source. Do you need time as to I'm gonna, this? As I'm going to sit here and sing it. Yeah, no. Hard pass. No one wants to hear me sing. Are you Googling it right now? I'm, uh, I'm Spotifying it if that Spotifying counts. Spotifying it. Same thing. Looking it up. Yes, Tennessee Whiskey by Chris Stapleton. Oh, I knew okay. it. I don't even, I don't think I know that song. I'm pretty sure I put it in Instagram story. Okay, uh, so we'll add Chris Stapleton to show notes and I'll link to him on Spotify so folks know what you're talking about. I'm listening to it right now. Sorry, can you tell. can't hear it, but I can. Oh, no one can see what's going on, but he's just swaying in the breeze here listening to the song that none of us can hear. So it, it's entertaining for me. Um, but you are talking about Tennessee whiskey this week, and Truth. I'm talking about Knob Creek, which we are, for the first time in a while, both drinking the same thing at the same the time. The same thing. Now, let's be clear to our audience, because while we're educating you all and ourselves on Tennessee whiskey, Knob Creek is not uh, a Tennessee whiskey. I texted no. Nick this last night and was like, man, I'm fucking trash for <laughs> suggesting we do Knob Creek because I have it on my shelf when I'm supposed to be talking about Tennessee whiskey because uh, it's not Tennessee whiskey. And then Nick was like, eh. And I was like, eh. So yep. here we are. That's exactly what I was like. Um, I'm just proud of us for talking about 
American whiskeys this season and drinking American whiskeys while we talk about them. At least we're staying within the realm of the country. Um, so I'm we sorry, are not that was, drinking. That was my snaps to you. Nice. Thank I'm, you I'm always that. bringing new things to the podcast. That's Every, my job. If we are anything, we are consistently inconsistent. Oh, yeah, which reminds me that I am forever consistently inconsistent because I fucked up last episode again, like I do every episode. I feel like it is not a true Whiskey Queens podcast unless uh, I have to correct something that I messed up in a previous podcast, either a pronunciation or information or something to that effect. So last, uh, in season two, episode five, the last episode that we recorded prior to this one, we were talking about KO distilling and the whiskey I had from the KO distilling company. And I had mistakenly said that KO was under the jurisdiction of Prince William County. And that's why they were in the industrial area. In actuality, I had it wrong. And malarkey was in the reverse, right? Actually, I had it wrong, where KO is under uh, sort of the purview of Manassas City. Uh, and that's why they are in a more stringent area and required to be in a more uh, industrialized strip, as opposed to Malarkey, which is another distillery in the same area, but under the jurisdiction of Prince William County. And so they're, they don't have the same level of restrictions as, as being in like an industrial area. Well, there you go, folks. There's your correction for the week. Yeah, there's always one. So. Hey. Take everything I say in this podcast with a grain of salt, because it may or may not be true come next week. Oh, God. Which means you just have to continuously check in to see what's true and what's false. Yeah. (laughs) Welcome to living with Paul. Eh, It's okay. But we are drinking I have good intentions. You do. You do have the best of intentions. Um, Do you want to give credit to the correction? <laughs> the correction was messaged to me by my dear friend and acclaimed author who you all have heard about ad nauseum upon this podcast, uh, Wit Talcott. Wit, at some point I'm going to bestow some type of title on you because I don't think an episode goes by where we don't bring you in. Right. I still need to, to formalize your title. I wasn't going to bring it up, but I'm glad you did. Where the fuck is it? Well, I feel like it has to do something with being a co-host. And so I just have to like formalize. It needs to, it needs to have that same like performative, alluring, royal-esque-ness that dear friend and acclaimed author has or dear friend and award-winning massage therapist has. Maybe it's dear friend and fabulous podcasting co-host. I'll Nicholas let you. Howell. I'll let you marinate on that for a while. Yes. That's a lot of words, and I don't know that I would quite remember it all the time. Yeah, I'm sure you can get it to something more concise and just as lofty, though. I do like the the regality behind what you're coming up with. My dear friend and acclaimed (laughs) podcaster. I like it. Yes, Um, maybe that's what it is. You're my dear friend and acclaimed podcaster. Okay, I can, uh, that works for me. Um, Did you pregame? A little bit, but not like normal unfortunately for everybody so oh. i'm drinking i'm drinking the i'm drinking fast in that in the upset the upset what the fuck's the upset in the outset <laughs> to make up for it which apparently i'm doing well at because i don't know how to talk already 
but we are drinking the same thing. So we both have bottles of the Knob Creek nine-year bourbon whiskey. Uh, so nothing special. Um, Paul had this bottle already on hand. I think it's Ooh, burning his tongue. Oh, don't chug it though. Ooh, Ooh he's, you going for another one? Okay. Why well, down that one? Because I feel like I have to be uh, slightly- At a certain level. At a, yes, I was going to say inebriated, but at a certain level is much more- uh, appropriate. You're welcome. For I'm the here pump. for you. Uh, but we do have the same bottle, so we haven't done this in a while. So I'm curious what your take is on this. Um, but the Knob Creek Nine Year is a bourbon whiskey. Uh, it's 100 proof or 50% ABV your use, uh, versus the traditional kind of minimum 80 proof required by law. Uh, they say that the color on it is a copy copper. Copy. Have another. Wow. Wow. I'm only like an ounce in at this point. So this is proving well. Um, the color on it is a copper to a medium amber. And they say the taste is rich, sweet, woody, full-bodied, and almost fruity. It, yeah, like yeah, I'm almost fruity. Okay. Like you're, you're fruity enough. Um, it definitely is a 100-proof whiskey. It definitely has a bit of a burn towards the end, which is why I think you did a little dance a minute ago. Uh, the color on it is really nice. It's actually like a nice kind of amber color. I think like Jurassic Park when they find the, the mosquito in the amber. Oh, I was like, uh, yeah, come on. Like when the T-Rex eats somebody, like what are we talking about here? No, no that the is amber. true, the mosquito. The mosquito and the amber, but it definitely has that like rich color to it. Um, and it it's definitely sweet. It's a bourbon. Uh, for me, I'm getting like vanilla and a little bit of orange, but it's also really tannic. Like it kind of has this burn on the side of your tongue that comes across like pepper or it's dry. It has a bit of a drying tannic feel when you're when you're sipping on it. Um, but it's it's sweet. It's vanilla. It's orange. It's toffee or caramel, whatever you prefer to use. Um, that's what I'm getting from it. I'm the burn definitely hangs around for a while though. Like when you smell oh, yeah. this thing, the burn it doesn't fade. It definitely hangs out for a, a minute. So the finish oh, it does. is a little on the long Which, side. Surprisingly, while I make faces with and I'm like, ooh, I kind of enjoy it. It's it like lets it's you like know what little, you're drinking. Like a, I was gonna say it's like a little self-torture. That's that is not what I need to say on any public podcast. So everyone strike that from the record. Thank not you. editing that out just so we're painfully I know aware. you're not. That's why I said strike it from, from the record. The record. <laughs> <laughs> um, it definitely has like an astringent kind of taste towards the end. Like the alcohol, the burn, it lasts and lasts and it's just fading for me now. And I finished my last sip probably five, six seconds ago. Um, but I it's good. I the sweetness and caramel on the nose. I get the sweetness. I definitely get the caramel or kind of a toffee taste to it. And I do get mm. orange. Like I get something kind of citrus fruity, like whether it be orange or nectarine or yeah. maybe orange blossom, like I'm thinking smells. Um, I get something fruity, but nothing like crazy. Like nothing, I'm not getting like weird smells or really deep sure. complex smells. I'm getting kind of like a make everyone I happy, mean, higher proof yeah. bourbon. No, totally. And this, you know, and uh, you can tell me if you feel differently about this, but Knob Creek to me is sort of that, is a staple, right? That most people know. Yeah, totally. And I think that most people associate like a sort of a mid-tier. Yeah, I would say that. I mean, 
this bottle was a few shelves up and I want to say I paid a little over $30 for the bottle. It's a 750 milliliter bottle. It's a hundred proof. So you definitely can use this when you're mixing cocktails because it's gonna, you're going to be cutting it a little bit and it might make it a little bit more palatable. Not mm. that it's not palatable. I do like it. It just has more of a burn that I, than I typically prefer when I'm drinking whiskey and sipping whiskey. This is something sure. that I would definitely use as in with a mixer. Um, but they're in actually with, in, in with, with, in with, with a mixer, those technical in, a mixer in with for now for two scene forever. Mm -hmm. And we're mm -hmm. palmunciations. Um, it's yeah, considered it, it ain't me. It's me this week. My, I'm telling you, it's been studying for days and like reading things over and over again. My brain is toast. Um, they do consider this whiskey small batch. There's no legal distinction or requirement for what small batch is considered. So I was going to say, yeah, like there's nothing saying or dictating what small batch is. So when you think of a micro distiller, pretty much anything they do is going to be small batch because of the quantity that they're working in. So most of them will kind of identify their product as a small batch for larger distillers like this. Usually they're referring to whiskey that's coming from select barrels that are then going to go and create a unique variation of their whiskey. Um, they're not usually, when you think small batch, you think like they brew, they brewed or distilled or matured this specific thing. Um, it means something different to really every distiller out there because there's no legal distinction or requirement kicking around to kind of help guide them into what is or is not small batch. So gotcha. small batch to them is whatever they mean small batch is. Um, the brand itself was introduced in 1992. So we're not talking about a really old brand by any Bitch means. Bitch is younger than me. Yeah, exactly. Um, so they're actually manufactured by Beam Suntory. Uh, so they're actually uh, very corporate. Um, if you look at the bottom of their website, they're so corporate that you can download the corporate branding policies for the entire company. Like at the bottom of the page is the style and brand guide, like a PDF that I downloaded. So I now can go do branding for Knob Creek if I really want to. <laughs> you should. I should. Um, other brands in the family are Jim Beam, Makers, Basil Hayden's, Canadian Club, uh, Pinnacle Vodka, uh, Kanmara, and Kilbegan. So they have a pretty wide portfolio, mm. and that's not even all of them. Um, but Knob Creek is a Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey product of Jim Beam uh, out of Claremont, Kentucky. Uh, it's one of Beam's, quote, small batch bourbons, like I said, targeted towards kind of a higher end market because you're paying over 30 for it usually. Basil Hayden's is another one in that family of kind of the higher end small batch bourbons that they produce. Um, what I did find interesting is that the nine years is the traditional statement and it was removed in 2016. Uh, they actually took it off because inventory levels were so tight that they couldn't guarantee the age statement on their bottles and it didn't actually come back until this year. So in 2019, they said they would start to reintroduce the nine year statements and in 2020, they actually started putting nine year back on the bottle, which is why I think we were both able to get our hands on a nine year statement bottle. Um, they attribute the dark amber color to how long they age it. So they actually age in white oak barrels that are given the maximum char. Do you know what the maximum char number is? Four. X? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was like, it's more than three, I presume, because yep. three is like the standard. Yeah, so four is the max, uh, and, and that's where the sweetness comes from. So with the max char, you're pulling a lot of the sugars to the surface, and they're caramelizing on the interior of the wall of the barrel, and that's so the spirit can actually get at those sugars and the caramelization. Um, we're drinking what's considered to be an entry-level bottle. Uh, the book and the website make a really big deal out of the Knob Creek Signature Barrel Reserve Program. Uh, it was 
created during Booker Bowe's work when he was master distiller at Jim Beam. He actually was the person credited with creating the Knob Creek line itself. Um, but each bottle of the reserve is unblended. Uh, so what they do is they try to highlight the characteristics of hand-selected barrels, and that's what goes into that particular bottle. Uh, so it actually comes from one cask or one barrel and then is bottled from there. Uh, individual retailers can actually claim specific barrels as part of the process if they want to. Um, like I said, whiskey's not blended with others, and there's a lot of things that are still controlled, though. So even though you can pick the barrel that it's coming from, they're still controlling things like climate, age, mash bill. Those are standardized across. It's just really the, the specifics behind the barrel and the not blending feature behind it. Um, what I did find kind of cool is a resource on modernthirst.com. So it's actually where I found the mash bill for Knob Creek because they don't really post it publicly, but there's a giant cheat sheet for bourbon mash bills. And for hmm. Knob Creek, it's 75% corn, 13% rye, 12% barley. And if you're ever curious about other bourbons and what their mash bill is, this website, and I'll put it in show notes, lists all of the various mash bills that people have researched. So you can kind of scroll and scroll and scroll and find uh, the different recipes that are out there. Um, but even though it's from the same mash bill, it's aged for at least nine years, bottled at 120 proof or 60% ABV. This is the reserve. Um, it's supposed to be the richer version of the standard bottle. It usually retails for around 50 bucks. So it's still kind of a decent price point for being a reserve bottle. Uh, so it's a little bit more affordable to get something nicer on your shelf. Um, I do appreciate the transparency, I guess I'd say. Uh, there's a whole review section on their website where you can go in and review the different bottles they currently have available and they don't really seem to curate it. So if you love it or hate it, you're gonna see the different reviews out there. So if you're looking to bring a bottle of Knob Creek in, I would suggest going through the site, reading through the different reviews and reading through the flavor profiles they've posted for the different bottles and see what people are saying because they don't curate them. I've seen really good reviews and I've seen like really atrocious reviews for some of the bottles. Not a lot, but they don't seem to suppress anything. So if you want an honest take, their website's actually pretty transparent, which I thought was That's kind of interesting. Good. Yeah. Um, but they're definitely more of a corporate brand. The website is very corporate, so, very polished. There's not a lot of history behind it because it came about in 92. So did you do any uh, digging or research, if you will, on the corporate overlords? No, I didn't dig too deeply into them because we're talking about corporate overlords later on in the season. So I didn't take so, a, a deep and dive. And we will, and we can do a deeper dive later. And we can also do an even deeper dive when we talk about uh, Japanese whiskey. Yeah. As Beam Suntory is a subsidiary of Suntory Beverage and Food Inc., which is uh, out of Osaka, Japan. Oh, yeah, that's right. There were a whole bunch of Japanese whiskeys listed in the brand style guide that I downloaded yes. as well. You are correct. Uh, and Suntory Toki whiskey, I actually enjoy. So it's actually going to be on our list of things. And you should be able to get that in Maine. So maybe it'll be one that we do sort of a, a joint uh, tasting of when we get to that point in the, in the pod. Yeah, totally. I have to make a pilgrimage down to the New Hampshire State Liquor Store because they have tons and tons of whiskeys to choose from. It's a little harder locally to find some of that stuff, but um, I think the Japanese whiskey section might might require me making a pilgrimage and stocking up. So that's your that's your Knob Creek. I I like it. It's good. It's something that I would definitely use for you know making a cocktail though, not necessarily sipping. The burn is just a little too much for me to enjoy it as a, a sipping whiskey. Interesting. Yeah, no, I agree. I don't know why I said interesting. I totally agree with you. Interesting, Nick. Thank you for that analysis. This is fabulous. 
Now you want to tell us about what we're not drinking this week? I really don't want to tell you <laughs> anything right now, except have a sip of my whiskey. So, thank you, Nicholas, for that delightful ditty on Knob Creek. Whenever I'm, you do that little exit statement, that's all I think of is Winifred Sanderson when she's on stage and she thanks him for that marvelous introduction. That's all I think of. Continue. <laughs> I'm basically Bette Midler. Little so, bit. Uh, exactly. So I'm here today, ladies and gentlemen, to talk to you about, an, about Tennessee whiskey and give you the lessons by Paul, which may or may not be factual depending on how many whiskeys I've had. You'll have to tune in next week to find out. It's basically like drug history, essentially. (laughs) Um, So before I get into the nitty-gritty deets of Tennessee whiskey, I just want to give a little little shout-out to American whiskey and what we're talking about in general. And just to let people know that while American whiskey is distilled in America, so, yeah, a dub poll. Wow, that was the most ingenious statement I have ever given in my life. Pour me another... It's an accurate statement, though. It is an accurate statement, but it's not at all what I meant to say. (laughs) Hot mess express. So what I was trying to articulate is, while any whiskey distilled in America is called an American whiskey, uh, it's also a catch-all term, American whiskey is, for anything that doesn't fit into the legal definitions of bourbon or rye or malt or wheat, right? And, And look... I'm going to tell you all on the outset, I did not go into the nitty gritty and look up all the legal definitions of bourbon, rye, malt, and wheat because I have a life. Um, and maybe one day we'll tell you more about it. But basically, uh, the, the term American whiskey allows for the freedom to create unique uh, whiskeys that are distilled in America without sort of a legal, uh, meeting the legal definition of a particular type of whiskey. Like small batch. Yes, so what does this mean? Here's some examples. So if you make a bourbon from a traditional bourbon mash, but you do not age it, you do not age it in brand new barrels, because that is a requirement for bourbon, then it's an American whiskey. If you have a blended whiskey, uh, you mix bourbon and rye, that's an American whiskey, right? Because it doesn't meet the legal definitions of a bourbon, rye, malt, or wheat. Yep. Or if you mature your whiskey in wine barrels or you finish it in port barrels, it falls under the umbrella of an American whiskey. So, isn't that interesting? The other thing that I wanted to sort of talk about related to this particular piece is that only in blended American whiskey, right? One of the most famous being Seagram 7, are you allowed to mix a grain neutral spirit like vodka with a whiskey. There are legal rules in Canada, Ireland, Scotland, that whiskeys in these countries, even blended whiskeys in these countries have to meet certain basic criteria for whiskey. That is not the same standard in the United States. Hence, Seagram said. Interesting. Fascinating, let me tell you. Um, Yeah, so that was my little ditty on American whiskey. Okay. And now I'm done. Next. No, tell us more. No, I know. You're dying for me to teach you. I feel it. I feel it in all of you right now, which sounds creepy, but it is what it is. Tennessee whiskey. 
the topic of the podcast, even though we drank a Kentucky uh, bourbon whiskey. So the audience will forgive us. I well, you know what? If they don't, that's that's part of the journey. Although made of different grains, all whiskeys that were made in the 18th and 19th century were made in pot stills or chamber stills, which is a, a primitive forerunner to the column still. Okay. And they were all unaged. And we're going to learn, you know, it, it, we're going to, we keep saying we're going to learn more about uh, the distilling process, right? The pot stills and all that hoopla later on. Is that still the case? Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. I think um, the whole history behind coffee stills or column stills is really uh, yes. interesting. Yeah. From the distillery, uh, basic whiskey, let me, let me clarify. I'm a hot mess over here. From the distillery, uh, whiskey was sold back in the 18th and 19th century is what we're talking about time frame wise, everybody. So basically after it was stilled in the pot stills or chamber stills and it wasn't aged because it wasn't aged back in those days, it was sold in bulk to third parties. So think of taverns, hotels, people who blended the whiskey, uh, who would basically fix it or rectify it to make it more palatable for their customers, for their clients, who have you. And this is where sort of the introduction of one of the most common methods of rectifying, which was charcoal filtration, entered the scene. Okay. So why do we rectify whiskey? Particularly, why do we start rectifying whiskey in the 18th and 19th century? Well, it's because these old stills were fired by wood and coal. So unlike today, where we use fancy technology to do this stuff, they were not able to generate enough consistent heat, right? To sort of produce the uh, perfect formulation, if you will, of heads, hearts, and tails, right? So what ended up happening is some of this distillation stuff burned, right? Because you weren't able to control the heat. Yeah, yeah. The same way that you are today, which basically resulted in lower yields of the heads, heart, and tails that you could use, right? So people, so it wasn't as smooth, it wasn't as tasty, it wasn't as delightful as what we can sort of produce today with the technology that we have, which led to charcoal filtration, which is one of the defining features of Tennessee style whiskey. So after the Civil War, whiskey sort of, whiskey making sort of moved and developed into the Tennessee and Kentucky region. Whiskies, particularly in Robinson County and Lincoln County, Tennessee, reached a level of commercial refinement in the late 1800s. So both of these counties practiced the charcoal filtering method, which has now sort of when you think of Tennessee style whiskey, the charcoal filtering method is a huge component of it and it's called and it's often referred to as the Lincoln County process. Okay. And in this process, whiskey is filtered through or steeped in charcoal chips before going into a casks, going into casks for aging. So what this does in a technical way to describe it is this method removes the long chain conagers and fusel, fusel? I don't know what I'm saying, fusel oils found in the tails and it sweetens them up. So in other words, for words that I can understand, what it means is that as you sort of filter it through the charcoal, it tames the rust, roughness of the whiskey, of, of the corn bourbon, the whiskey, right? Mm -hmm. And brings out the sweetness. Okay. That's what it does. 
Knob Creek is not charcoal filtered. No, because that is a distinction of Tennessee style whiskey. Mm-hmm. Yes. Correct. So in Tennessee, barrel aging was not a universally common practice as it was in Kentucky, right? So that sort of led to the more common practice of using charcoal filtration in Tennessee versus Kentucky to make the whiskey more palatable. So in Kentucky, they aged the MFers in barrels. In Tennessee, they said, fuck the barrels. We're gonna put it in charcoal. Hmm. Okay. Maybe they didn't say it quite to that extreme. This is the this is the drunk history component of it. So what does that mean? Today, a number of distilleries still sort of use the charcoal, the filtering method, right? Either charcoal or some other material in their post-production regimen. But the, the one that's most well-known to everybody who still uses charcoal mellow, mellowing as a main feature of their whiskey production is Jack Daniels. So Jack Daniels Distillery still, still does it. They still use charcoal mellowing as a, as a key component in their whiskey making. And so what that means is they're, as I said, they're, they're doing either a charcoal filtration or I was going to say marinating, or they're marinating <laughs> it in charcoal, uh, steeping it in charcoal before putting it into barrels to age. Okay. Uh, and the, I think the last point, if I have a point to my rambles, is that the volume of production of whiskey in Tennessee in particular is nowhere uh, in the level of volume that it used to be. And I would postulate that this is largely as we've discussed in multitude of episodes, a byproduct of prohibition, right? Where so so many distilleries that were active in producing whiskey were shuttered as a result of prohibition and those that weren't shuttered after prohibition were often turned into ethanol production for World, World, World War II and never sort of formally recovered from that. So today, Tennessee whiskey is largely defined by Jack Daniels. There are some up and coming brands. Um, One of them I featured uh, a bit back, I think in season one, uh, Uncle Nearest. Oh, I totally forgot that was a Tennessee whiskey. Yes. Huh, okay. Mm -hmm. Because when we try Tennessee whiskey, I really don't want it to be Jack Daniels. I mean, I will, I'll I'll take one for the team, but if if there are other brands out there that I can support versus a giant corporation, I will happily look for a different bottle. Sure, so Uncle Nearest is one, there's a few others. I mean, there's a a handful and they're sort of, I think there are some up and coming ones, but I think the most well-known Tennessee style whiskey is Jack Daniels. Yeah, and I think some of the up and coming ones will kind of bleed over nicely into when we start talking about uh, craft distillers and kind of these smaller yeah. distilleries that are coming up and producing new stuff and doing things different ways that aren't part of these huge conglomerates and huge corporate overlords like some of these other brands are. Definitely. Interesting. Definitely. Yeah, I do recall them saying that they are an unfiltered whiskey, um, which also, though, they use such a heavy char on their barrel that I wonder if there's anything to the level of char on barrels, like higher charred barrels that are essentially like blackened and caramelized on the inside. If there's any filtration or any filtering or softening going on in the barrel because of the char on the interior of the barrel. So I would assume, actually, I would assume not being a scientist of 
PhD caliber, if you will. There we go. Uh, that having the the char on the interior of the barrel, right, produces a similar, if not like a similar effect to charcoal filtering, but just at a, a very reduced smaller amount level. or smaller level. Yeah. Right. I think we've talked about that in previous episodes where that's one of the components. I mean, the main component is drawing flavors out and the vanilla sugar sweetness that Pull comes from it. From the wood. Exactly. But there has to be some level of like filtration going on there as well, or cleaning or kind of softening the flavor of what's going on during the maturation process. Sure. That was really interesting. And I'm not angry to have the Knob Creek in my cabinet, but I do think it will be used for things like hot toddies and not necessarily sipping on. Um, but Even for... though I've sipped on way too much for this episode. Even... Yeah. Mostly for you all. That's why I do it. I do love that you have like a giant bottle because your bottle is like double the size of mine. This bottle was a gift by a uh, person who, who brought it to my house. And that's where I will leave that. Okay, we'll, we'll leave it there. Uh, we'll leave it there until next week because maybe I can prod you. Um, no prodding. Oh, fine. What are you drinking next week? Whiskey. Oh, okay. I have no idea either. So, oh, yes. I don't, I don't know either. And that was something I was supposed to talk to you about in the pre-show. <laughs> if anyone has suggestions, feel free to hit us up on Instagram at the Whiskey Queens um, and let us know what we should be drinking for American whiskey and maybe Tennessee whiskey since we didn't do it this week. Totes. Mm. All right, everyone. It has been good. It has been great. Bye, everyone. Bye.